This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And that includes an interesting story about trade. We've talked so much. Everyone has been, for decades, a proponent, Jason, of free trade. Now, it might be that we're moving into the era of managed trade. Right. I wasn't really familiar with the nuances Mm -hmm. of this. We've talked, as you say, so much about trade, but this could be a major inflection point for how goods and services move throughout the world. We're also going to talk, speaking of goods and services, about credit cards, how you use them, and what may be going on on the other side of the equation with credit card companies raising the amount you can borrow. That could be our new debt trap. That's a little bit of a scary story. We finish up, though, with something fun. Polly Massens did a story, and she takes a look at the Goop Lab with Gwyneth Paltrow making its debut on Netflix. She watched this series. It's a series. Every episode, Jason, begins with a warning. So, uh, fascinating. Uh, Another fun bit is the exclusive look and exclusive sound of the new Super Bowl ad from Porsche. They haven't been in the big game for decades. They're back. First up, though, we talked about this week's issue with the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber. Joel Weber, the editor of Business Week, here with us in New York City. Let's start with the cover, an arresting image and a reminder that for all the haters against Tesla, that stock's doing awesome. Yeah, so the company's way up so far this year, but also over the past few months. Uh, this is a story by Dana Hole about a really vocal minority of Tesla haters, Elon Musk haters, on Twitter go by uh, Tesla Q. And these are short sellers who are really hurting right now because as this stock has soared, they've felt the brunt of that. Well, that's what I love about this story. Like, Dana gets to this one individual in particular who's really had a heated social media relationship with Elon Musk. Yeah, it's an incredible story about sort of the battle between this one guy who really didn't like the company's fundamentals and his interactions with Tesla uh, as a company and how he really uh, took things to a different place, and so did Tesla in response. Right. I mean, and it's just a reminder of how binary this is. We talk Absolutely. about it, I feel like, just about every day on our show, Either and we have the bulls, and we have the bears, and never the twain shall meet. I mean, there's no. nobody who essentially is like, Tesla, it's okay. Yeah, that's right. So what Dana's story really does well is, like, there is this wider community of haters, and they almost, like, hive mind uh, with each other about... Yeah. The company, and it's sort of the case study of like one guy who actually, you know, got into the the ire of Elon and Tesla, and that's what remarkable timing for this as the company goes through the roof right. in terms of valuation. Well, it's safe to say that one of the reasons that Tesla has become so popular and has captured the imagination is the environment uh, and people really caring about the impact of the planet the car industry, et cetera, which leads us to ESG and Green. And Bloomberg Green, which we just announced this week, big launch. Uh, This is the company really down in the newsroom, really doubling down on a space that we think there's going to be some amazing coverage around, all rooted in data, but look like climate change is the story of the moment. Um, And it's not one that's going away. And we really wanted to root that story in in data and stories that are going to be really memorable. So that's what you should expect from Bloomberg Green. And in this issue of Bloomberg Business Week, we use that data as a centerpiece in a story about quants and how they're looking at ESG data. Yeah, and if you think about who's got the most data is the quants. And they're really good at using it, right? But the catch is not all of the data really completes the picture. And what quants are actually really good at are plugging those holes in smart ways. Well, and Bloomberg Green kind of helping to complete the picture too, right? This is just an all-in platform, you know, online, TV, radio. Uh, They have this incredible dashboard, but it's all about things that impact the the environment and really tracking what's going on in in the the climate. bringing it back to data, like, quantifiable yeah. things yeah. that we can look at and like where where applicable where are places that we can actually make change and right. and I think that will be that impact will be a, a really amazing element of this Bloomberg Green project a story of our time for sure another story of our time obviously is China right and sports we love talking about it and a phenomenal profile by Ira Boudway of Joe Tsai the owner of the Brooklyn Nets uh, vice chairman co-founder of Alibaba 
talk about a man in the center of it all. So what's interesting about this is that I don't think many people knew who this guy was until the NBA and China fiasco <laughs> happened a couple months ago. And that was immediately when we were like, wait, that guy who just acquired the Nets, yes. the Brooklyn Nets now, uh, is the co-founder of Alibaba. His story is even more remarkable than that. He's Taiwanese-born, Ivy League-educated, lives in Hong Kong, speaks Mandarin, you know, billionaire. And yet, in the middle of this whole dilemma between how the NBA and China are going to interact, he put out a really thoughtful note, and it made us go, we want to talk to that guy, because he's really in the thick of everything that's transpiring between worlds. Right. Well, and Ira not only got to talk to him, he got to talk to Jack Ma, and really presents this portrait of profile. someone who represents the biggest story of our time, as I said. And he looked at the Brooklyn Nets and said, you know what's the best investment? Better than a Park Avenue apartment? Professional sports and NBA. And that's Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. The benefits of free trade, Jason, they have been touted for decades. And based on what's going on in the world, that era of free trade may be coming to an end. So I learned something very interesting this week from reading this story. I always learn something from Peter Coy. He's here with us in New York City. Managed trade is a term that I don't think, if I had heard, I really understood until I read your story. Tell us what it is. Managed trade is where instead of sort of letting the chips fall where they may, letting private parties work things out for themselves, you sort of dictate terms. So, for example, the voluntary restraint agreement on autos with Japan, that was a form of managed trade. It was, quote-unquote, voluntary. In effect, it was a quota on Japanese imports of cars. We seem to be going through another era of that now, and the U.S.-China deal, the phase one deal that was signed by Trump earlier this month, is an example of that, according to Gary Clyde Huffbauer from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Recall, the deal has a provision that China will buy $200 billion worth of products from the U.S. over right. a certain period of time. And there's a, a secret provision in that agreement, secret, we haven't seen it, that specifies what products and what volumes. So this is not free trade by any means. This is an agreement between two countries where it's just hammered out in a, in a back room, and you can argue it's good or it's bad, but it's clearly not right. ordinary laissez-faire free trade. So why are you writing about it, and why is it so significant, you think, that maybe we be, that we're pushing back on the era of free trade? And remind us, I mean, free trade was the whole like, concept, right, of nations doing what they do best, right. selling that, buying what right. they needed, right. and everybody kind of doing the best that they could, and everybody benefits. Right. That's uh, the ideal Econ 101 version of right, trade, and it, right. and it can work, does work in many cases. Now, the, the argument in favor of managed trade would be, look, um, China is just not holding up its end of the bargain, and they're not a market economy, so why are we pretending they are a market economy? Let's just knock heads and get a deal done. And that is uh, what uh, the... Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, and Trump seem to have concluded. Because right. I feel like it's like, well, sometimes a nation, maybe China, because they don't necessarily play like everybody else yeah. on the developed world stage, that maybe they need a little bit of nudging. Maybe right. they need some that, quotas that to kind of get argument. them on the right. Are they but, right? So, so that is the, the pro argument. The con argument is that there is harm done here. Yeah. And one form of harm is that you end up, um, China is buying absurd amounts of things it doesn't really need, which of course is not a U.S. concern, but the, the, it's just like creating inefficiencies on both sides. The other harm here is that, let, let's say that uh, U.S., we don't know what the terms of the deal are, but I can imagine there's probably a lot of soybeans in there. Yeah. yeah. So um, Canada, Brazil had captured a lot of the soybean market from the U.S. Now the U.S. is kind of capturing it back. Well, more generally speaking, what happens is that the country that is suddenly um, frozen out of the market because the U.S. is coming in has a legitimate complaint, can go to the World Trade Organization. In fact, the Europeans have already, uh, we had Phil Hogan, he's mm -hmm. the U.S., I mean the European Union Trade Commissioner in Washington this past week. And he said, yeah, we haven't read it yet, but we're going to take a close look at this. And if we believe that this is managed trade, which is against the principles of the World Trade Organization, right. we could bring a complaint. So what are the lines in your story that I think is really 
revealing in many ways, and I think will resonate with a lot of our readers, listeners, and viewers, is that managed trade is about cutting deals rather than following yeah. rules. Yeah. And I think anyone who has watched this administration will say, yep, <laughs> that checks out, right? I mean, this is the whole ethos of the, the Trump administration in many ways. And, you know, makes no bones about it. That's what he wants to do. He's doing it. And uh, there are people who would say it's, it's achieving right. certain objectives. Um, but in the broad picture, the U.S., going back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1934, mm-hmm. passed the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, that was about trying to pull back from the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, which contributed to the onset of the Great Depression. The idea that we're, we, we want to increase commerce between countries and the U.S. for decades has generally been in the forefront of promoting free trade. We have the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, that's GATT. Mm-hmm. Then, we, then we had the uh, World Trade Organization's right. successor. And, and I uh, think people forget, sorry to interrupt, but like the WTO, that was just created in the 1990s, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a relatively uh-huh. recent invention. Right. And the whole goal is to that everyone benefits right. when there's more commerce. And in fact... We've seen that. I mean, certainly the rise of China and India lifting hundreds of millions of people from poverty has a lot to do with their joining the world trade uh, system. So, Peter, is this just something that the U.S. is pursuing? Well, it's most conspicuous in the United States, thanks to Trump's whole philosophy on trade. In fact, we've seen some examples of free trade elsewhere. There's a a year ago, the... uh, European Union and Japan struck a free trade agreement. Right. Just in uh, this month, early January 1st, uh, China actually pulled back on some tariffs. So it's a, it's a little bit of a jujitsu thing. You know, it's not that J- China is suddenly a free trade right. country, but they see the advantages of striking agreements like this. Now, I do believe that the United States is so influential that when managed trade starts to come into the U.S. agreements, there's a good chance that other countries are going to look at it and say, hey, we could either fight this or we could join it. And right. they might start doing the same thing. Well, and I do wonder, and, and you address this a, a bit in your story, Peter, how do you square <clears throat> or how does this managed trade phenomenon and the resurgence of it relate to the lack of multilateralism yeah. and, and sort of a move toward it bilateralism? It. it is part of it. I, I talked to Myron Brilliant. He's the uh, person who handles trade issues for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he said... You know, we had an era of multilateralism. Trump has been quite specific. He does not believe in multilateralism. Right. He believes in bilateralism. Right. And he believes that tariffs are a useful weapon. In fact, that's the card you want to be able to play. He believes that since the U.S. is the world's largest market, and it does, that the best way to strike a deal is to threaten to withhold access to that market. That's Peter Coy, economics editor of the magazine. I think what's interesting, we've talked about free trade and how important it has been, Jason, to lifting so many people around the world out of poverty, but maybe that era is over. Well, and that era may be over for a long time. I think yeah. one of the things that Peter does a nice job of illustrating in this story is these are not things that change overnight. And once a shift like this happens, we could be looking at a very different world for decades, maybe even in a century to come. The protests in Hong Kong, what, now in their seventh month, Jason, and the impact has been felt on a city that is known for its wealth and its high-end retail and services. It's also well known for those who really know about it for a vast sea of income inequality. Right. It's amazing when you look at the numbers, that disparity when it comes to how much people earn. Jim Ellis is here, business editor for Bloomberg Business Week, to help us understand the employment and unemployment picture that is fast changing. I mean, a lot of people have always thought of Hong Kong not just as this sort of shopping mecca, but also as this place of extreme wealth in in Asia, particularly in China. And that's true. It has lots of millionaires. It's a place for the rich. The issue is it has an awful lot of people who don't make much money. The minimum wage in um, Hong Kong is actually a little less than five U.S. dollars. I mean, that it, it comes out to being very low. It's also the lowest in the OECD. And it turns out that what, what you have there is a gigantic income gap that really gets felt as the you know, slowdown in the economy happens now 
because of the protests. It has the biggest inequality <clears throat> gap in the world, right? I think it's is it the Gini coefficient, right, where they measure that. So it's I'm, it's huge. It, it is a it's a it's a giant difference, and I think what happens is that you really see it now that the economy is slowing down rather dramatically because of the protests. Right. All of a sudden, employment, this is a place where employment has always been extremely high and unemployment's always been traditionally low. Traditionally, unemployment is less than 2% mm. in Hong Kong. And um, so when you see the kinds of employment numbers we're looking at now, in uh, retail workers, unemployment has gone closer to 5%. In um, uh, restaurant workers, it's about 6%. Now, that sounds not bad for a lot of economies, but for Hong Kong, that's double, triple what traditionally is an unemployment rate. What's happening there is that people are discovering folks have stopped coming because of the protest and other reasons, so we're going to basically start firing people. And they have, right? And they have, and they've been firing them. And now there's a fear in Hong Kong that there will be more firings to come simply because we're starting the Lunar New Year celebration. Right. One of the quirks of that is that people get Lunar New, Year, Lunar New Year bonuses and they'll get an extra month's salary. But a lot of people are afraid that, ah, they'll use that extra month's salary that comes with the bonus to also count as your month's severance that you're required to pay. And so as soon as you pay the bonus, you'll fire people. And that's the big fear there. Well, and one of the things you pointed out in the story, which I find so interesting, is this notion that there's a knock-on effect, too, that if people aren't working, if the economy slows a little bit, even some of those essentially like safety net that exists, yeah. you know, meals being delivered and things like that, right. that starts to get cut yeah, back, too. I mean, a lot of meals that were given um, are sometimes given by restaurants for free. And, but now the restaurants themselves have fewer visitors because tourism is so far down in Hong Kong since the um, uh, time the protests started. I mean, tourism has dropped, I guess in November, it dropped probably close to 50%. That's hard to imagine. I mean, what's happened is a lot of mainlanders, and they depend on mainlanders for their tourism because 80% of visitors to Hong Kong come from the mainland. A lot of them either are afraid to come right now or they're angry that the uh, protesters in Hong Kong seem to be anti-China. And so for mainlanders, this has become a nationalistic issue. And so they're saying, why should I spend? Why should I go over and uh, you know, do my vacation there when I can go elsewhere in the world? Well, and what's interesting, too, from a worker's perspective, if you're a banker, you're just picking up stakes and either moving back to London or New York, or maybe you're relocating to Singapore, Singapore if you want to stay generally in the region. That's what's happening. As a lot of bankers are saying, you know, is this worth that? Or a lot of companies are saying, do we really want to be in, around there right now while this turmoil is going on? And so the beneficiaries of that would be another financial center like Singapore, or sometimes jobs just go back home. I have to say, though, okay, all right, as you say, the bankers can find another place to live. I mean, what's great about this story, what's tragic about this story, and you guys give a lot of personal examples of people who don't live on much to right. begin with, right? And some of them, they talk about these part-time workers in the restaurant industry that are basically being told to take unpaid leave until the economy recovers. It's like, how do you do that? Well, there's not much you can do. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting people in the uh, story is is a woman who pilots a boat that takes uh, diners from the mainland to the jumbo restaurant that sits out in Hong Kong Harbor. We've all seen pictures of the red right. restaurant floating there. And she used to make 13, sometimes $26 a day. Now she's making many days nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's because fewer people are going. The restaurant itself, which is world famous, right. you know, has had to fire half of its employees cut down the number of hours that it operates and cut down the number of days a week that it's open. I mean, this is really serious business. And that's Jim Ellis talking about Hong Kong. And of course, Carol, this story got only more complicated this week with the spread of that virus that started in Wuhan now has been documented in cases in Hong Kong and Singapore, even here in the United States. So the Chinese Lunar New Year uh, off to a very difficult start. That city being impacted from so many different angles. Safe to say one of the more polarizing stocks, companies, and individuals is Tesla and Elon Musk. I think that is the understatement of the year. <laughs> no 2020, doubt. that's going to take the cake. And so much of it plays out on Twitter. Absolutely. It is the place to go if you want to figure out who's where on anything. We count a lot yes. on Dana Hall to keep us honest on all things Tesla, all things Elon, and all things Twitter when it comes to this company. She joins us from San Francisco. An amazing story 
in this latest edition of the magazine. Dana, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. All right, so take us inside this confrontation, it feels like, this ongoing confrontation between the two sides of the Tesla equation because there's a community that's essentially mm -hmm. been created on Twitter that is, shall we say, not fans. Yeah, so it's sort of known as Tesla Q, and a, the Q is added to a company's stock symbol when it files for bankruptcy. Clearly, Tesla has not filed for bankruptcy, but there is a fairly significant group of people who sort of either feel like that's inevitable or they just are not buying what Elon Musk is selling. And, you know, there have always been critics of Tesla on, you know, Yahoo Finance and Seeking Alpha, but kind of over time, the, the criticism of Tesla migrated to Twitter and the, and the hashtag Tesla Q really kind of came into vogue over the past couple of years. And with every big news announcement or big news event, like when Elon attempted to take the company private at 420 a share, you just saw the Tesla Q hashtag more and more. So it's this sort of fascinating world of people that um, are very critical of, of Musk. Some of them are short sellers. Some of them are just critics. And it's almost like a filter bubble where, you know, if you just follow the Tesla Q hashtag, you get a completely different view of the company than if you follow Musk and all of his adoring fans. There's one critic in particular, Dana, that you go into, Randy Pothy. Tell us about him. Who is he? And how did he come to have such a big war, it seems like, Twitter war with Elon Musk? Sure. So Randy Pothy is um, a really fascinating person. You know, Tesla Q is filled with all kinds of people. And uh, as I was kind of trying to explore this world, I was looking for a character who could kind of explain what this community was all about. And uh, Hothi uh, is an individual whose real claim to fame is that he really dogged Tesla on production at their Fremont factory in 2018. And he would post these photographs of the logistics lot and the finished vehicle lot. And he seemed to really have like a bead on daily production numbers. And everyone was trying to figure out, who is this Skabushka character? Is he a contractor, a supplier, a former employee, a current employee? Like, he seems to be in Fremont every day. Like, who, who is this person? And, um, and as I got to know him, I just you know found him to be sort of a really intriguing figure. He uh, has shorted Tesla stock, but he, to be clear, he's not like a major short seller in the way that we think of you know Jim Chanos or David Einhorn. He's actually a graduate student at the University of Michigan. And so, why is he so passionate about this? Because he spends a lot of time on this, Dana. Yeah, he certainly he certainly did. I mean, I think that you know he's just sort of you know a, a, he. I mean, he's a he's a very research based uh, you know fellow who has been a lifelong student. He got interested in the stock market and capitalism. He grew up in Fremont, not far from where Tesla has its factory. And the more he kind of dug into Tesla's financials, the more alarmed he grew by you know, the pronouncements that the company was making. And because he, um, you know, lives in the Bay Area, he was kind of in a position to do on-the-ground research, uh, you know, that, that is very valuable to a lot of people. So he just started putting his research out, and it all came to a head in April of 2019 when um, he actually followed a Tesla car that was testing autopilot, tweeted about that, and then Tesla actually went to court to get a restraining order against him. Why? Well, Tesla argued that he was, you know, driving dangerously close to their employees, was trying to sort of mess up the demo, that he was a threat. And, um, you know, I mean, they were clearly kind of, you know, threat. They felt Tesla as a company felt threatened by his research and uh, they felt like they you know, needed to sort of do something to keep him away from their employees. This all was coming about right before Tesla was having its big autonomy day for investors as well. Well, and what's interesting, too, is somewhere, I, and help me out with the timeline, there was a dossier on Hothi that was released as well. I mean, he's also been kind of feeling a little threatened as well targeted, in all of this, I think right? Targeted, Yes, targeted. Yeah, I mean, it's called doxing. So, you know, a lot of people who are on Twitter use, you know, sort of aliases or pseudonyms uh, because there's sort of a history of people who have been critical of Tesla and Musk being doxed. Uh, Hothi was doxed as well in July of 2018. And people didn't really notice it at the time. But, yeah, someone on Twitter kind of released this this dossier that linked him uh, to, you know, his graduate school, uh, w where his brother worked. I mean, so he was definitely feeling exposed as well. 
So, Dana, you know, you follow this company as closely, more closely than almost anyone, certainly, that, that I know or um, am able to, to read and, and keep up with. And you have a quote from Gene Munster. He's been a guest on our show as well that I think really is an interesting take on this battle, the broader battle. I'm just going to read it. It says they, meaning the folks who have really started to, you know, question uh, Tesla, they put Tesla under a microscope and they've succeeded in diluting the company's success. It leaves the average person who loosely follows Tesla confused and concerned. And I have to say, I agree at least with the confused mm. part because you have these unbelievably rabid people on both sides. It feels very binary in a lot of ways. What's the net effect of that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's incredibly binary. And if you and if you subscribe to sort of one set of people and not the other, you get a completely diluted sense of what the company is all about. So, you know, a classic example is if there is a Tesla accident involving one of the vehicles, Tesla Q will amplify those accidents. But often, I mean, and and you might not see anything anything about it otherwise from the fans. Um, you know, with, with everything that the company does, it is under a microscope and. Um, and so, but I, but I do think that Tesla Q, you know, they, are, a lot of them are very smart. They dig deep into the company's financials and they've been right. I mean, they haven't always been right, but they have been right about some things. And so uh, their, their ability to kind of influence perception um, is, is an interesting one. At the same time, you know, we have to remember that Musk is a celebrity. He has 30 million Twitter followers. And so the, the sort of publicity that Musk is able to garnish himself far outweighs whatever Tesla Q is, is able to do. I mean, it's a little bit like a bunch of um, Davids taking on Goliath. <laughs> I have to say, like you, I'm also one of the followers, one of those 30 million. Hey, Dana, what's interesting is I feel like as you write out write your story, I mean, Elon Musk is kind of having the last laugh here, right? Because the stock has just taken off, uh, and they've had a, a series, I feel like, of recent successes um, that have been the catalyst for the stock uh, taking off, and that's really hurt those short sellers. Oh yeah, I mean the Tesla stock has doubled doubled in the past six months, which yeah. is sort of unheard of for a, for you know a company for a company particularly in the auto industry. Um, you know, a lot of things that people predicted would go wrong have seemed to go right. And, you know, Tesla had record deliveries in the fourth quarter. This China factory is up and running. But with Tesla Q, I mean, there's always going to be another event. So, for example, you know, Tesla reports earnings on January 29th. Everyone is going to be very focused on that. And uh, you know, as a journalist, what's sort of amazing to me is you know. The, the earnings hit, and just as I'm still reading through it carefully, you see instant analysis all over Twitter from all kinds of people who are very sharp. And, um, you know, as others have noted, I mean, Twitter is now kind of a kind of an ancillary trading tool. So a lot of traders who are in the stock really do pay attention to the conversation on Twitter. I don't think any other company has that kind of social media activity when it comes to you know, talking about the company. It's unbelievable, too. And you do such a great job describing the, this character. And one of the quotes I love is he says, people are always like, never bet against Elon, but I'm like, always bet against <laughs> Elon. I mean, it's just an amazing yeah. sort of moment and a company that is wildly influential. And as we say, and as you know better than anyone, wildly polarizing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there's like, you know, there's sort of a public narrative and a public perception of Musk. And then there's sort of a counter narrative that a lot of people don't know, but that a, a pretty dedicated community subscribes to. And, and these people have done their research. I mean, they, they seem to have an incredible amount of time on their hands. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but it is kind of amazing to me the, the lengths to which people will go to kind of uncover things. And um you know, it's. I just. I think it's just unparalleled in finance. I mean, other companies like Amazon and Netflix and Apple are also shorted, but there's no community known as Apple Q or Netflix Q right. on Twitter that I'm aware of. I but, mean, if if it is, it's, it's it's not nearly as significant. And the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, it's not just on Twitter now. Um, you know, one of the one of the folks, uh, his name, he goes by the name Tesla Charts. He just started a podcast, so now there's like a Tesla Q podcast that right. has, I think, seven or eight episodes under its belt. So, you know, the content that's generated, it's not just a bunch of you know crazy tweets. I mean, it's getting into you know more more social media venues. Does it help and create? greater transparency for this company. And I do wonder if we're getting somewhere with social media being kind of good in terms of ferreting out a lot of information about a particular company. Advocates or would say that Tesla Q has brought due diligence to the investment mm -hmm. process and that this kind of crowdsourcing work you know, made it more possible for investors to 
know what's really going on. You know, at the same time, you have to remember that, I mean, longs and shorts, I mean, they're sort of diametrically opposed in terms yeah. of what their, what their hopeful outcome is. So, there, you know, there's no peace, <laughs> there's no peace <laughs> agreement between the two sides any, anytime soon. That's Dana Hall. I mean, she covers in much detail the comings and goings of all things Tesla and Elon Musk. So we love, love talking to her. And this story, no doubt about it, this whole community of short sellers and naysayers when it comes to Elon and Tesla, she really covers it. She does. And really takes us inside the binary nature of this stock and this Mm -hmm. company. There are very few people, as you and I have joked about, who are like, yeah, Tesla, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Banks and other credit card issuers, Jason, they seem to be setting a trap once again for borrowers. This story, you and I have been talking about it in the newsroom, it really is worrisome. Well, it's a reminder of the complicated, volatile, some might say, and maybe even at times predatory relationship that exists between credit card companies and us Mm -hmm. as consumers. Michelle Davis did a fantastic job on this story. She's here with us in New York City. So remind us what we're talking about, because as I said, this relationship is a tortured one at times. Right. So we're seeing the comeback of this practice that was really popular before the financial crisis. It's kind of been in banks, like, you know, it's been in their their strategy book for a really long time. Um, and it's where they boost people's credit limits without them asking. It's called a proactive credit line increase. It's different than if you go to the bank and say, hey, I want a credit line increase. The strategy behind it is banks have run analysis. Um, the Fed has run analyses that show that if I boost someone's credit line who already is borrowing money, they 100% of the time are going to borrow that much more money. So after the crisis, the CARD Act was was enacted and the regulators were like, you can't do this anymore. Like, we're going to have more stringent guidelines. We're going to, you're going to have to have um, income from the last 12 months for the consumers. You aren't going to be able to just do some of the predatory things they were doing to do PCLIs. Why is it that there was so much pushback? Because I do wonder, like I was thinking a lot about this story. Is it, you know, when they up a credit of somebody, is it because they're great customers and they pay it back and they're responsible or not necessarily? Not necessarily. So what I found most interesting when I was reporting out this story is that what sources were telling me is that the ideal candidate for one of these would not be someone who is just, you know, paying off their balance every month. It would actually be someone who has a balance, someone who is near their, um, you know, near the The max on their card. I was told... If you don't carry a balance, like you would probably not get one of these. And it's because the whole goal is to, you know, kind of boost revenue more, get the more fees, borrowing. The interest, right. right? Right, because it's worth reminding people, and I sort of had to remind myself as I was reading this, there are essentially just two basic ways that credit card companies mm-hmm. make money on transaction fees mm-hmm. and then on interest. Right. It's not that complicated right. at the end of the day, right? And so... And then, and even I can understand this from a math perspective, (laughs) interest on a bigger (laughs) pot of money is more money and ultimately more revenue. Exactly. And so it's kind of, it's a psychology game that banks are playing. Like some banks use this as a way to to get your spending happening on their card. So if I'm at Capital One and I see that you're spending a lot on Amex's card, I might boost your limit because I want to kind of flatter you and get you to spend more on that card. But something else that Capital One is doing that our sources told us is that actually they had run all this all this data and you know analysis of like past payment behavior and they saw that always after they boosted someone's credit limit if their utilization was at 30% it would stay at 30% so this was a way for capital one to really show revenue growth right. um, pretty quickly if they needed to they knew this was kind of a lever that could be pulled to right. uh, because again, it's thirty percent of a bigger exactly. pot of money, and yeah. ultimately that's right. And and you write in this story, and keep me honest here, Michelle, that Capital One actually resisted doing this for for a time, right? The CEO was like, mm, I'm not sure that's a lever we want to pull. So after the crisis, as I said before, you know, the rules in terms of awarding these got a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Banks got better at navigating the rules. You know, technology helped them collect income more quickly. Right. When all of this happened, Capital One saw a huge revenue opportunity and, you know, Richard Fairbank, the CEO, said, we might, if we do this too aggressively, like, we might set up customers to become perpetual borrowers. We don't want to do that. So they put up these kind of guardrails to make sure that they weren't going to set up people to be perpetual borrowers. Three years later, um, you know, as the stock was falling, they ran into some problems. Uh, they remembered that this was a lever that they could pull, and they they loosened the uh, right. the guardrails a little bit. This isn't about they don't want their customers those the card issuers they don't want their customers to default. They no. just want them to carry higher and right. higher balances that they can 
somewhat managed but because they're getting higher right. fees or getting higher interest off it. That's exactly. what it's all about. Yeah, it's really walking a fine line. You know, you, you want them to be borrowing, but you don't want them to default. Right. But that fine line is what's interesting. And I think people are, are spending more and more time talking about the risk of this. I was like blown away by some of the stats. You know, you talk about younger borrowers being hurt the most. The number of cardholders age 18 to 29, at least 90 days behind on payments, has reached the highest levels in a decade. So the concern is, especially in an economic downturn, like what happens to these exactly. balances? What happens to these default rates? Well, and that impacts the banks ultimately. Yeah, and because right now, like we're already seeing these cracks in the market, and we have the lowest jobless rate in God knows how long. You know, right. the stock market is at all-time highs. Everything's great. So why are there cracks right. already in the credit card market? Um, you know, one of the credit agencies put out a report saying that this year um, delinquencies for everyone are going to probably reach the highest in 10 years in credit cards as they fall for mortgages, auto, other types of consumer loans. So it is something right. you know to be thinking about. Right now, um, consumer or credit card debt is actually growing at a faster rate than student loans, mortgage loans. Wow. And that's Michelle Davis bringing us a really important story. This is an area of the consumer credit market that probably was forgotten about a little bit in the post-financial crisis or in the recovery from the financial crisis, but that behavior by the credit card companies Something to watch. I have to say, the statistics in that story alone about the folks that are past due on their credit card balances and the number of young borrowers who seem to be maybe potentially running into trouble, really a worrisome thought. The Goop Lab with Gwyneth Paltrow made its debut on Netflix this week. Every episode, though, Jason begins with a warning. Well, and fair warning, it feels like. And this is a, a type of warning and a type of ethos, it seems, that's followed Gwyneth Paltrow ever since the beginning <laughs> of enough. Goop. Uh, Polly Mazens is here with us. She watched it. She's got a take. What do you think? Um, well, I can say I was exhausted just watching it because I don't think I can be trained to be a psychic medium. I'm not super into fasting. Energy healing isn't my jam. Right. <laughs> Take a step back. For those who have been maybe living under a rock and don't know what Goop is all about, tell us what the premise of this series is all about. Yeah, so it's Gwyneth Paltrow's brand, and they've always been into alternative medicines and alternative healings. They've been in trouble before with the law. It's been around for a few years now. Oh, yeah. It's been around for a little while, and it's kind of caused a controversy every little while. They'll have something pop up and everyone's like, what on earth is that? So that was the jade egg issue right. where they said that that was good for a woman's vaginal health and, and they were you, later fined. I was going to say, if you don't know what it's about, just Google it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we won't go into all Google the details. Um, and that was sort of the big conspiracy for a little bit. And then this show is basically every episode, it takes one alternative healing method and basically puts it to the test. And the people who are testing it are called goopers sometimes also goopies mostly goopers and the is Gwyneth Paltrow's staff at goop and so take us inside the sort of whole goop mindset because it's really important I mean it seems to be a reflection of what Gwyneth Paltrow really thinks life should be about and products that she likes and the way she wants to live her life I mean one of the things that strikes me is there's a photo that accompanies the story that has the goop war room and it looks like exactly what you would think a goop war room would be. No war. Uh, it's barely a room in the sense it's just this sort of spacious, very sunny, uh, sunlit. Pink couches. Yeah, exactly. Pink couches pink. and um, a lot of presumably like affluent white people sitting around and like solving problems that no one really knew they had. Yes, I think the trailer puts it best when they say that they're there to test ideas that are maybe too scary or too out there. And they're going to test them to see if they're therapeutic, if they're healing in any way, if they can help their staff, be it something that they should, you know, would usually seek therapy for or a medicine that they're taking. This might be an alternative to it. So that's what every single episode aims for, is to test that theory. And in some cases, the ideas are not too crazy, like right. eating right and exercising are the keys to a long life. Yes, we all agree. Right. And then in other cases, it's a breathing technique that allows you to withstand very, very cold weather, taught by a man who has a bunch of world Guinness records in that space of being able to, you know, be outside in crazy, crazy temperatures or swim in crazy temperatures. And the goopers test this breathing technique to see if it works. They cry. There's always cry. Every episode, someone cries. And they, you know, are doing this kind of arm gesture, which is just amazing to watch from a comedic perspective. Right. But at the end of the episode, one of the main goopers actually says that her anxiety is more under control and she is working with the doctor to wean off of her medicine. Well, and 
you actually have an alternative motto, which I love quoting uh, someone in the show, just because something isn't proven doesn't mean it doesn't work. And that seems, to, it really is, that, that says it all. Absolutely. I think that definitely says it all. And, you know, maybe it doesn't work and it could work one day, but I think any time that something is presented, especially on a platform like Netflix, as maybe this will work, you have to look at the potential risks of that. You have to wonder if there are viewers that are going to see this technique and opt for that rather than a more proven, traditional, scientific method. It comes at a very interesting time, Jason. How many times on our show we're talking with individuals who are in, in the, the wellness space and or the medical space which is increasingly embracing the wellness space. And I do wonder about some of the information that might come out that, you know, as we explore alternatives, whether it's acupuncture or alternative medicine, that slowly kind of the traditional world is embracing, like to be kind of careful about how this is presented, right? Because there isn't necessarily a lot of science or R&D or medicine behind this, right? Or, or, or research that has shown that these theories are correct. Exactly. When you're looking at things that are too out there, as they say, then you run that risk. And I think we really have to look at it from the viewer's perspective. Are people going to be swayed by sort of the power and the celebrity of Gwyneth Paltrow? And I think that's the ultimate question about the show. Well, and it's a really good point, too, this notion that we do talk a lot about. And, and people want to believe, yeah. right? They want to yes. believe. They are increasingly skeptical. I think we all are, to some extent, about big pharma, right. about sort of being over-medicated and hoping, you know, we think about a plant-based diet, that mm -hmm. like there will be these things that we can do that will ultimately make us feel better and maybe less polluted as, as people. Yeah, and I think that gets to sort of one of the episodes that I think was actually the best, where they try a pescatarian diet, they try mm -hmm. a vegan diet, they try fasting, and the analysis they come to is that eating right and exercise is what is good for yeah. you. Right. And in that episode, they try... my grandparents told me that exactly. like, <laughs> years ago. So I, I think there are moments where you have to look at the show and go, oh, you know what, this is a valid, normal, rational point about wellness. I think where I kind of have to scrunch up my nose and look sideways at it is when you're looking at you know, energy healing and psychic mediums, things that are just a little bit too out there, at least for my sensibilities, but I'm sure someone views as valid. Are they very clear? Like we, we I, I kidded like in the introduction that there's a warning at the beginning of every show, but you start your story that way. I mean, are they very clear about saying, you know, just FYI, you know, there hasn't been either scientific research that supports this. Are they very clear about saying what we present, you know, take it or leave it kind of thing? There's quite literally a warning at the beginning. So I think that they're very transparent about that. I personally wish that there were a warning like every five to seven minutes, but <laughs> yeah. I have to give them credit for giving that warning up front. And I do think that one of the good things about the show is that it is important, as you said, to question big pharma and to question these things that we are, you know, maybe not so sure on. But I think when it comes to questioning medicine that is scientific and that is proven, yeah. that's where I start to, to worry. Well, because that's what's led us down this path where people aren't vaccinating their Correct. kids, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And I will say Goop exactly. has made it very clear they're pro-vaccination, and they've written that on their website extensively. So I think where credit is due, I'll give that to them. I think that that's very important to have that kind of warning, even on a site like that. One last question. The Goop brand, man, it just seems like it's getting bigger and bigger. Oh, yeah. Is there a valuation on this? I believe the last valuation I saw was a quarter billion dollars, which is obviously very impressive. Right. And you know, I think it's getting bigger culturally as well as financially. I think that the fact that there are these retail stores now, there's one in Sag Harbor in the Hamptons, there's in New York in Santa Monica, California. Online there's a huge presence for them. And I even think the pushback that they're getting is ultimately part of the brand because it keeps us all talking about the website well, and about Gwyneth. That's Polly Mossens, her story, taking a look at the new Netflix series, uh, The Goop Lab with Gwyneth Paltrow. And I gotta say, I just kind of want to watch it based yeah. on what she had to say. Well, I kind of want to watch it with Polly. <laughs> As she said, that warning, which comes at the top of every episode, it kind of maybe should have been flashed maybe several times throughout the episode. Yeah, a lot to dig into there. It'll be interesting to see what the next turn that story takes will be. ESG investing, taking into account environmental, social, and governance factors when making an investment. This form, Jason, has been around for years, no doubt about it. It absolutely has, and yet, and yet, and yet. I feel like this is the and yet episode of Bloomberg Business Week. But, you know, what we're talking about is this notion that it hasn't totally caught on, or maybe it is now, but what I love about this story is it's a very Bloomberg take totally. on all of this. Totally. Once at the table. Emily Chasen is here with us. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. All right, so tell us about this piece because, as we alluded to, and you have said yourself, this is sort of Bloomberg 
taking on ESG in many ways. Yeah, well, so ESG has been out there for a while. There's about 30 trillion in assets in the space now, so it's wow. grown a lot. A lot. Um, but a lot of those assets are sort of like negative screening, where they just take out companies they don't like. Kind of um, alcohol, tobacco, porn, yeah. <laughs> anything like that they'll take out. Um, and that's most of the assets in the ESG space. And then there's been this ESG integration to get sort of risks into your portfolio. So the environmental risk, which everybody's talking about right now, social risks, um, customer risks, all of that to get into your portfolio. And this is sort of the next evolution of that because that really relies on data. And um, the data is not very clear. It's kind of a mess in ESG. It's not regulated. Um, a and, lot of- and this I just have to say, because I feel like Jason and I have had a lot of conversations about ESG, and I'm sure you have too, that it's not like you can compare one fund to another. Everybody's using different metrics to yeah. kind of screen for those ESG factors. Yeah, I mean, every company that produces ESG data is often using different metrics as well. or and it's their data, right? Yeah, or sometimes they don't produce it at all. Mm-hmm. So this story is about quants and how quants are betting, you know, we're good with bad data, we're good with problems um, in data, and we can use this to our advantage and build sort of models that incorporate all the data and let us trade better. So tell us about some of the quants, because you're talking about some well-known yeah. folks here. One of them is Arabesque Asset Management. It is a firm that's based in London and Frankfurt, and they are building a huge artificial intelligence model that works to see how to incorporate ESG factors so that they think they can tilt their portfolio and get a better return. It is a huge model. They run it across 6,000 computers. Right. So um, 11 different data centers. That You concluded that in your story. That kind of blew my mind. It just gave us an idea in terms of the scale of information and yeah. data that they have to play this with. This is a right? lot of unstructured data. It's data you know, from governments. It's data from NGOs. It's data from all sorts of groups um, that are producing this ESG data. It's not just the companies. Um, and trying to par- parse it all together and make estimates about it is really a gargantuan task. And what's interesting about that, too, is right, they're finding, as a result of some of the ESG work they're doing, right, I think that they can use it more generally right, in just investment applications at their firm. Yeah, a lot of the quants that are betting on this, they're not just betting on finding good companies or bad companies. What they're betting on is that ESG information will produce better information for right. trades and that incorporating more information is better than not. Well, and talk about that element of this, because this is something you've done a lot of work, you and the team have done a lot of work on, Emily, which is this notion of not treating ESG as something other, as something separate, (laughs) but actually integrating it into a broader portfolio approach. How far along are we in that, where this becomes more normal course of business? Yeah, well, one of the quants we interviewed in the story is Acadian Asset Management, um, one of the really big quant firms out there. And they've just decided they're going to take ESG and put it into their portfolio metrics. So the same way they say, if you're a corrupt country, we're going to give you a discount for corruption um, if your company's based there. They'll do that for carbon pricing. And what they found is like really fascinating that carbon pricing um, in places where there is an actual carbon tax is affecting stock prices in those regions. So in places where there isn't a carbon tax, big emitters they saw were also getting affected. Hmm. So what they did was they said, let's put in an implicit carbon tax into our portfolio, and we're going to go extrapolate based on all 40,000 companies based on their emissions. And even if they don't report emissions, we're going to estimate what their emissions are based on their revenue, based on their, um, their size, just to see if we, their industry, just to see if we can figure it out and sort of use this information instead of pretending it doesn't exist. Right. I have to say, I love this quote too in your story. I think this was from the CEO of QMA and they're a unit of Prudential Financial, right? We all know about that firm. Um, quants are used to filling in the gaps. I mean, this is what's kind of crucial. I think this is what's been needed in the ESG space, right? That there are a lot of gaps in really, you know, defining the metrics that measure ESG, each of these different ones, um, categories, do it really well. Yeah, and this is also really about the hunt for alpha, right? There's so many ESG yeah. metrics. There's so many different ways you can see a company and which metrics are actually going to influence the market and influence returns. And I think the quants are really trying to find that out. And so when you think about the quants, I mean, there is this sense, I think, historically, when you think about hedge funds and, and other money managers that as the quants go, sort of, so go others. I mean, is this sort of the tip of the spear in in many ways? Because I'm thinking about the news that I think we talked to you about a couple weeks ago of BlackRock taking this more into account. Well, actually, BlackRock's also been publishing quant papers on this. So they're they're in this too, because, but the quant models have taken longer to develop. So the quants are sort of almost, on the other side, almost a later entry for some ways into it. But they also, you know, see this as an opportunity for them um, that maybe other firms don't see. 
that's Emily Chasen, part of the ever-growing team here at Bloomberg covering climate and really with a very Bloomberg twist, right, Carol? This yeah. idea that the quants, they're on to this and maybe have some solutions, but they're certainly identifying some places where there are some gaps. Well, we're realizing with ESG that figuring out those factors, ESG factors, picking those out that are better than others, it's not so easy. But the quants, man, they have a lot of data that certainly can help in this process. So it's been a big year for Porsche, Jason, no doubt about it. This company reported record deliveries for last year, and they predicted that its first all-electric model, we're talking about the Taycan, will generate further growth in 2020. Porsche Cars North America alone reporting record U.S. retail sales last year. We're delighted to have Klaus Zellmer, CEO of Porsche North America, back with us. He joins us from Atlanta and a little further south from where you are, Klaus. The big game coming up, the Super Bowl, in just a few weeks, and you are going to unveil a huge new ad. Tell us about it. Yes, uh, you know, Porsche is uh, uh, looking at Super Bowl as a, an opportunity uh, to share the Porsche story and, of course, the new arrival of a family member uh, right uh, at the big game. Uh, and we're really excited about it. Last time we were there was 1997, so quite some time ago. So we, cho- we chose to choose those moments carefully. Well, and tell us about kind of why now, why this car? I mean, this is a big game, obviously. Is this about going after kind of a younger audience for Porsche? Generally speaking, it's going after new audiences and making new friends out there. Uh, And the Taycan, that's uh, the entry now for us into the battery electric vehicle era, which is momentous for Porsche. And uh, that's why we want to share the story about Porsche. We've been uh, making, developing and producing, selling sports cars for over 70 years now. And uh, we want to show a couple of cars uh, through those decades uh, in that spot. But we also want to show the Taycan, the battery electric vehicle. All right. So, Klaus, notably, and you mentioned this, there's a little bit of a history lesson uh, embedded in this ad. And you do show some older cars as well. Tell us about, you know, what you're going for. And I do wonder in a field where, you know, there are some notable upstarts here. Maybe you're trying to show a little bit of a legacy and, and history and experience. Well, you know, we think every Porsche ever built in over 70 years has got a soul. Uh, and now we talk about soul electrified. Uh, so you want to see some of those cars uh, that uh, this brand uh, stands on. Uh, I give you one example. There's a racing car in that spot, a 917K that was uh, built purposely for winning the 24 Hours of Le Mans uh, 1970. In 1971, it was the main feature of Steve McQueen's uh, Le Mans movie. Um, And uh, that car is part of a heist, a heist uh, of cars that are trying to catch up with a Taycan uh, going uh, through a interesting scenery in Germany. So talk to us a little bit about the Taycan. We were lucky. You brought a car here to Bloomberg. Jason and I got to sit uh, in it with our own Hannah Elliott, as you well know, our, our car guru here at Bloomberg. Tell us how car sales are going. What kind of numbers are you seeing um, across the world? Demographically, where is it selling? Well, generally speaking, uh, we have just started uh, delivering, and the United States was actually the first country in the world uh, getting those cars on the ground uh, delivered to customers. So we've sold 130 uh, last year in 2019, so that's not big numbers, but we're aiming, uh, of course, to bring this car to the States in, in larger numbers. Um, uh, And the big swing that we see coming up is also connected to seasonality. So spring this year, you're going to see quite a few Taycans in Porsche dealerships and hopefully also all the prospects, hand raisers, um, depositors uh, and people who've already ordered the car then being enthusiastic about that new arrival. You know what's interesting, too, and I want to go back to the Super Bowl commercial because it really does get into the history, uh, where Porsche has come from, where it is today, and just kind of uh, all the walks in terms of the auto industry that you guys have been involved in. Why TV, though? I think in a world where social media has become so important, why is TV such an important medium, if you will, in terms of advertising? Is it still relevant to get new customers? You know, the equation of the big game actually is about 100 million people on the game day are watching the game. Um, And there is 
actually no other marketing or advertising platform in the United States with such an impact. Uh, so if you want to spread some big news about your company, and as I said, we don't do that every year, uh, you, you, you might want to look at that stage to, uh, to engage people then in what you have to say. Uh, and that's why Super Bowl, the TV ad, of course, for us is important. But you're right, social media plays a, a big role uh, when you want to create some awareness and get your car on people's shopping list. Uh, and social media picks up Super Bowl and uh, all the ads, uh, be, you know, weeks before the actual game and in the aftermath uh, as well. So uh, it's, it's a big multiplier for us, and that's why we're in there. And Klaus, tell us about the customer for the Taycan specifically. Uh, is this, how, how much, I should say, does this sort of widen the aperture, as it were, to a different audience, a younger audience, a different geography? Who's going to buy this car that might not have bought a Porsche before? I mean, is Jason your customer? Is that who you're going after? Who is it? <laughs> our, well, you know, what we can derive data from at the moment is our database with all our, all our depositors and people who've actually ordered the car. Looking at that, that's a couple of thousand of people. So that's uh, interesting that 50% come within the brand. So they, they're driving a Porsche right now and they want to either add the Taycan uh, to their uh, garage or they want to replace one of our cars. But 50% come from uh, the outside uh, of our current clientele. And the outside, uh, the main competitor in the outside world that is currently then engaging with the Taycan um, uh, is, is from Tesla. Um, so uh, we respect that brand. We respect them preparing the market for battery electric vehicle. But we also respect their customers now looking into driving a Porsche when it comes to battery electric. So what I'm hearing, Klaus, is that you're saying some of them are new to the brand, new to the Porsche brand that you're bringing in. That's right, yeah. 50% are new to the brand, uh, so they have never owned a Porsche before. And a conquest rate of 50% and more always is a very good indication for having the right strategy uh, in our business model, at least. And so, Klaus, tell us about some of the impact on your other uh, well-known brands and your other well-known lines, and specifically maybe the 911. I mean, that's such an iconic mm. brand in many ways, an iconic car. You know, how much does that change the way you think about it and may, maybe your customers think about it if they're transitioning to this new electric? You, you know, from my point of view, the, uh, the 911 uh, stands on its own. Uh, within our brand, uh, maybe even in the industry, especially with our fans, it's Nikon of the brand. Um, so people who gravitate towards the 911, and we've been building a car since 1963. Uh, it's now in its eighth generation. Um, they, they will remain with that car. Um, of course, they're going to try out a Taycan and see what that car is like. But a 911 will always remain a 911 from our point of view. Uh, however, if I look at the depositor data, yes, there are some uh, customers that currently drive a 911 and either want to add the Taycan to the garage or potentially have a break from the 911 and then drive the Taycan. So there's going to be a little bit of movement in there, but we're not worried about the 911 because that car is so rock solid in that segment of two-door sports cars. Um, that, that there won't be much substitution or cannibalization from our point of view. Wait, so do I hear that a 911 will ultimately, I know, go, go electric? I think it's the last line that you're going to do it. It will happen eventually? Well, everything is going to go electric <laughs> eventually, you know. That's, that's true. That's, uh, you guys that's, have made that commitment, yeah. That's the name of the game. Uh, and yes, the 911 will most probably be the very last one in the line for that transition. And it might happen, uh, you know, in, in a decade from now. We don't know. We just know that for, from our current plans, 50% of our cars sold in 2025 will actually have a plug. So will either be battery electric vehicle or will be a, a plug-in hybrid. All right. So it's the beginning of the year, 2020, as Carol mentioned at the top. 2019 was a great year. I believe you were recently returned from uh, world headquarters over there in Germany. What's the message that's been put out to the senior executive team in terms of what to expect in 2020? Well, you know, we've, we've seen record years now for Porsche in the U.S., 10 record years in a row, so a, a decade full of records. Now, we all know that the economy goes in cycles, so we need to be cautious. We need to be flexible. We shouldn't be anxious. Uh, we should be ambitious, and we are. Uh, but, of course, the economy uh, globally um, is potentially slowing down. 
uh, and we can't expect those record years to carry on forever. Uh, so we have to have a business uh, model in place that is flexible, flexible enough to cater for those fluctuations in the economy. Klaus, is it safe to say that as you guys continue the transition to electric vehicles, that there is going to be some extra costs as a result of it, and there's going to be some changing dynamics within the brand mix and how customers see it or how customers are purchasing, that there might be you know, some challenges when it comes to meeting the top and bottom lines? Oh, 100%. Um, battery electric vehicles in terms of the investment costs, development costs are more expensive than our, of course, you know, decades of experience with combustion engines and that type of technology. Uh, it's going to take years until we have scale in battery electric vehicles in a way so we will have costs comparable to combustion engines. Uh, however, uh, this is the way we have to go. And uh, it's not a revolution. It will be an evolution. That's Klaus Zelmer, the president and CEO of Porsche North America. And last year, we had some fun with him. He brought uh, around the Taycan, their first electric vehicle. And they're going all in over the next few years when it comes to electric. Well, and so appropriate that we talked to him and probably not an accident that Porsche is making a bigger splash at the Super Bowl this year given what we've already talked about as it relates to Tesla. EVs, they're having a moment. Absolutely. And really the question is, are the traditional car makers going to be able to keep up with Tesla? We spent a lot of time with Klaus Selmer of Porsche North America. For the full conversation, be sure to download the Bloomberg Business Week Extra wherever you download your podcast. And that's going to wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Bloomberg Global News. And get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.